CSI presents The Standard Show, the podcast that brings you the stories behind the standards with Matthew Childs and Cindy Parakil. Today's episode is for World Standards Day 2022. Hello, and welcome to The Standard Show. My name is Matthew Childs and I am with Cindy Parakil. Hey Cindy, how are you? Feeling as bright as rain. And you? Weathering the storm. <laughs> nice. I think I think those are two of my favourite ones so far. Yeah, same. So far my favourite. <laughs> now, the aim of this podcast is to bring you the stories behind the standards. And we are publishing this episode to mark World Standards Day. Woohoo! <laughs> happy World Standards Day, Cindy Parakil. A very happy World Standards Day to you too, Matthew Charles. So let me ask, how are you celebrating? Well, you don't really need to ask, do you? It's pretty obvious, I think. <laughs> Tea and cake. Of course. I had no <laughs> doubt. Well, for me, it's definitely cake, but you know, I'd rather go for coffee. <laughs> As regular listeners uh, will know, tea, coffee and cake are an important part of everything here on The Standards Show. Absolutely. So every year on the 14th of October, the Standards Community, in fact, Cindy, can we say Standards Community? We can say that, can't we? Yeah, Standards Community, we can definitely say that. So every year on the 14th of October, the Standards Community comes together to celebrate World Standards Day and to pay tribute, really, to the collaborative efforts of thousands of experts worldwide who get around the table, virtual and physical, to agree standards on all sorts of things that help to make the world a better, safer and more enjoyable place. Now, this year's theme for World Standards Day is about the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and showcasing the many ways in which international standards contribute to the success of the SDGs and the UN's overall 2030 agenda. One of the 17 SDGs, number 13 in fact, is about taking urgent action to combat climate change and its impacts. Now, since this goal was announced back in 2015 alongside the others, things have accelerated somewhat, with the climate crisis taking an even more prominent position in the minds of everyone really, policymakers, producers and the public. Our collective journey on the road to net zero is now something we are all very much aware of. And it is this journey that we thought we'd explore for this episode of The Standard Show, and in particular, through something called the London Declaration. Now, the idea behind the London Declaration is to enable a real acceleration in government and industry tackling climate change and their transition to net zero. And it does this through what I think is a really cool and simple idea. So the London Declaration commits signatories to consider key climate science in every new standard that is created, and that they will also retrospectively consider these requirements for all existing standards as they are revised. I think that's a really simple, cool and neat idea, don't you, Cindy? I agree. It's it's a simple idea with the potential to make a huge impact. Absolutely. That's all about that, isn't it? That yeah. huge impact that it has, mm-hmm. the, the, the potential there for, for sort of groundbreaking change. Exactly. Now, the London Declaration was one of the themes of ISO's annual meeting this year, which took place in Abu Dhabi in late September. And Cindy, you were there, weren't you? Yes, I was indeed. A nice gig. How was it? It was amazing um, to really see the whole standards community come together in person. So there were around um, 1,000 representatives in Abu Dhabi, and I think something like 5,000 more online. And that's really amazing. And in fact, I think it was the biggest ISO annual meeting ever. So um, this event, the ISO annual meeting, is one that brings together ISO members, which are 
which are 167 national standards bodies from around the world. And it's an open event too. So there were also representatives from government and regulators and business, academia, international development organizations, and lots of others. Sounds like that Simon's community we just talked about yep. just talked about <laughs> at the beginning. So this year's event then, the theme was Collaborating for Good. Yes, and to achieve the 2030 agenda and address all of our planet's biggest challenges, we need to think creatively, boldly, and collaboratively. So those were the buzzwords of the event. And um, this annual meeting really brought together this powerful community that you just mentioned, Matthew, that can collectively deliver change. And there was this real buzz, a, a sense of determination to deliver action, to address this existential crisis as a united front with all of us renewing our commitment. And the agenda was really good. Um, the speakers were fantastic. The sessions covered everything really from food systems, digital transformation, energy, technology, trade, inclusivity, um, sustainable tourism, that was an interesting one, sustainability, and of course, net zero. And just for me personally, it was, it was really wonderful to meet colleagues from all around the world, um, ones that I've never met, and to make new connections to take forward the work I'm leading on, which is all about standards supporting the digital transformation of developing countries. Now, as you say, Matthew, one of the themes of the annual meeting was the London Declaration. In fact, celebrating one year on from its launch in 2021. So one year ago, the international standards community, see, we can definitely say community, came together to commit to combating climate change through an evidence-based approach to the development of all standards. And at the um, annual meeting, there was a dedicated panel session looking at the London Declaration, and it was introduced by ISO Secretary General Sergio Mujica. And I really liked the way he conveyed the importance and timeliness of the London Declaration. So I'll give you a little snippet of that. Um, so he made the point that ISO was formed in 1946 in London, right after World War II to support um, rebuilding the global economy and world trade with the power of international standards. And 75 years later, we once again find ourselves united in the cause of building a better world and a better future, but this time one based on zero carbon, which has taken the form of the London Declaration. Ah, no, uh, nice. You know, you know, I love a bit of history parallel. I like that. <laughs> I, I know you do. Um, so as you said, Matthew, it's this whole concept is really neat. It's about considering climate science in every new standard that is created and retrospectively changing others as they are reviewed and revised. And there has been plenty of support. Um, the London Declaration has been endorsed not only by ISO and its members, but by other regional and international standards bodies too, like the IEC, Senelec in Europe, and COPANT in the Americas. And it has also um, been supported by the UN Climate Action Champions. So this panel session then, Cindy, on the London Declaration, what was involved? Yes, this panel session. So it convened um, some ISO members from different parts of the world. So South Africa, Australia, Germany, Fiji, to really, you know, just take stock of the progress made, assess the successes, but also consider the challenges that lie ahead and also what's needed to help achieve them. And I managed to get hold of a few of the speakers from that session to share their experiences. So in this episode, we'll hear my conversations with six fantastic guests. 
We have ISO President Ulrika Franke about the role of ISO and its 167 members in moving from climate commitment to climate action. Sidvir Bisson of the South African Standards Body about how they are engaging with stakeholders to deliver the London Declaration and their focus on collaboration. And speaking of collaboration, we'll hear my conversation with Karen Batt from Standards Australia and Ajeshni Lata from the Fiji Standards Body about their partnership on climate adaptation. Look out for a standard on wind loading. We'll also hear my conversation with BSI's Amanda Richardson about the ISO National Climate Champions Network, which was launched at the ISO annual meeting. And that's all about accelerating the implementation of the London Declaration. And BSI's Scott Steedman about the big picture and that long-term vision of the London Declaration. Now, before we get to all of that, a quick reminder that here on The Standard Show, we really welcome your feedback. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, especially if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Find and follow us on Twitter at Standard Show and on Instagram at The Standard Show. And check out the show notes for all of the ways to get in touch. So, Cindy, you mentioned Scott at the end there, but we start with him. Yes, we do. So Scott is BSI's Director General Standards. And we should say that BSI is the originator of the London Declaration. And Scott has played a pivotal role in its development as an idea and how it's being rolled out in practice. So a key architect, really. And alongside our other colleague, David Bell, Scott led the work to introduce the London Declaration through the ISO Council back in June 2021. So I wanted to know from Scott about the key milestones of the London Declaration in its first year. But I started by asking him to describe the overall vision. Cindy, the vision of the London Declaration is to make sure that we've gone through our whole catalogue of international standards, those precious standards that we use for our businesses, our consumers and our governments all over the world, and make sure that they are accommodating all the issues of climate science that we need to address climate change. It's really important that our existing catalogue of international standards uh, and our processes for developing new standards and for maintaining those standards in perpetuity, that those standards all incorporate the very latest climate science and that they are really working to ensure that we can address climate change. It's also really fundamental that we deliver on our commitment to have all voices heard from all around the world. So wherever you are, if you are affected by these standards, your voice should be heard in that process. These essential elements of standards making that we incorporate climate science and that we hear the voices of everyone affected by standards is a critical element of the London Declaration. So Scott, how can standards address the climate crisis? Standards are effectively the rules by which companies and organizations do their business. They contain the essential information that governments, consumers and supply chains rely upon to make their products and deliver their services all over the world. So if we can ensure that those standards incorporate the latest climate science and ensure that stakeholder voices are heard all over the world in those standards, we will be able to help accelerate the journey that we're all on towards a net zero transition and a more sustainable future. So the London Declaration was adopted by the standards community one year ago. What progress have we made? What are the top three milestones achieved over the last year? 
I think the three milestones that we've achieved over the last year are firstly that we've raised awareness amongst all the national members of ISO of the importance of addressing climate science in our collection of standards and our standards making, and of the importance of ensuring that voices are heard across the stakeholder community. The second milestone is that we have worked together to agree at the technical board how we're going to implement that activity through the committees themselves, how we're going to bring climate science advisors in to support our committee structures to adapt standards for the future. And perhaps the third milestone, and maybe even the most important, is that we're now looking beyond the London Declaration and we're working at a global policy level to help shape a common understanding of the net zero guidelines so that policymakers who may not be familiar with international standards can incorporate this idea of common language, common terminology, into their policy making for the future. And finally, a forward look. What do we as a standards community need to focus on this coming year? Well, now that we've got the commitment, now that we've got the plan, now that we've got the guidelines, what we have to do now is implement. We have to implement at the international committee level, we have to implement at the national committee level with our, in our own organisations, in BSI, where we'll be implementing the plan and incorporating climate science into our standards committee work as, as routine. And we will be looking to promote that as widely as possible to our industry stakeholder community, to our consumers and to our government. So listening to Scott there, Cindy, the London Declaration certainly doesn't lack any ambition, but you know, it has this, uh, this potential, I think you said it earlier, this potential to make a huge difference. Yeah, it certainly does. And Matthew, we should say that this ambition is built on three components. So the first is that consideration of climate science and the development of new and revised international standards. The second is that greater involvement of civil society and the most vulnerable to climate change in the development of international standards. And the third, and perhaps most critically, is the creation of an action plan and measurement framework to track our progress of the first two. And it is really this important issue of measurement and tracking our progress that I picked up with the ISO president, Ulrika Franke, straight after the panel session on the London Declaration. Now, in this conversation, you'll hear her talk about the net zero guiding principle, something that Scott mentioned, which will be launched at COP27, another important step in bringing clarity and alignment in climate action, specifically around the issue of tracking and measuring progress. But I started by asking her about the role of ISO and its 167 national standards body members in moving from climate commitment to climate action. Well, we are, first of all, very committed. I think that that is the first statement I would like to, to have. Uh, and what we have done is with the London Declaration is that we will see to it and are committed to see to it that all standards that are delivered in the future are according to getting results on climate. Mm -hmm. So we will go through every standard we have and when we the new ones will of course be accordingly to the to the london declaration and to the, the issues that we have to in the challenge of climate change mm -hmm. and then when we review our standards we will do the same thing we will go through them and see that they will have an impact on what we want to achieve so what is iso's unique contribution to achieve the climate goals and what is the role of its members, so if you could differentiate I think I think that if you realise 
If you know what standards are and what they can deliver, you also know that this is a great tool to push forward change. Because if everybody is following a standard that has you know, a meaning when it comes to climate change and what we want to achieve, or it could be the ESGs even, if you use that, we take a small step forward. And if a lot of people then all over the world uses that standard, we will all take a small step forward. So it will be small steps year by year by year by year as these standards roll out and people start using them. So that is a great tool uh, to have if you want to achieve a climate, something that will change the climate. And uh, when it comes to the local uh, bodies that we have, that we call the NSB, National Standard Bodies, they are very important because they are the connection to all the mem people, the corporates, uh, the organizations, policy makers and everything. So ISO can't do this alone. It has to be the NSBs that are all that. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is, we need that help. But that is also, I think, the strength because we are in then represented in 167 countries and we can make this change if we can endorse the use of standards locally in every country and that then we'll get that change the small steps I was talking about that that will then be true and I think also the national bodies have a, a task when it comes to talk to policymakers uh, because standards can't work alone. They need policymakers to make a framework, to, to produce a platform uh, which standards can connect to. So that is why it's also very important what the national bodies are doing because ISO can't contact all the policymakers in the world, so that has to be done on a national level. Absolutely, and we heard about some of the struggles that national standards bodies yes. face in engaging with governments and regulators it, and the private sector. It is tough because yeah. a lot of them don't know what standards are. Exactly. And you, so you start by telling them this is a standard. Yes. Yeah. And then you, you go on. But luckily, I think we have the, the two standards, ISO 9000 and ISO 14000. That, that everybody <laughs> knows. So it's easy in that sense to explain, oh, is that ISO? Yes, right. then they understand. That's so the starting point. That's the starting point, <laughs> exactly. That's, that's great. Um, so you also touched on the fact that you know, standards alone can't deliver change. So what are the supporting frameworks or initiatives that need to come together to make this a reality? Well, I think we always say we have to connect the dots. <laughs> One of the more popular expressions these days, but it's true. We do need to do that with the policymakers, to the standards and to the end users of the standards. We all have to be there and tell them to connect into the, the world of standards. And then we have this new, the guiding principles of net zero. And they will also be very important when it comes to guiding on the standards because it's not a standard today, it's a guideline. But eventually that will probably evolve into some kind of standard. And in the short term, I think it will have an impact on already existing standards. So we will talk about the net zero guideline when we talk about a standard that's already there and to say, can we tweak that standard in any way to get it more accordingly to the net zero guidelines? So that I think will be the first thing with the net zero guidelines. If you wanted to make it then into a standard, we all know that that will take a bit longer time. 
and I hope that we, with the, our standards, uh, uh, guidelines, sorry, guidelines, then can connect in a good way what, with what the UN High Level Committee is also doing on, on the same subject. Collaboration is so much needed at this moment because we can't invent the wheel, all of us. We have to collaborate. And I think that is one of the strengths in ISO as well, because in the standard making, what we are doing is collaboration all the time. So we are really good at collaborating in the, within the standard community. And I think that is also a strength for us going forward. Absolutely. So beautifully put. <laughs> but looking five years ahead, what would success look like if we managed to implement the London Declaration? I think that we have put, uh, you will see in practice, uh, regulators or maybe standards uh, achieving a change when it comes to building, infrastructure, th such things. For, because in the short run term, we have to see to it that buildings don't fall apart, that l electricity will be working and so on. So we have to take care of what, you know, tsunamis, storms, or things like that could do and that goes for everybody today it is not only in the countries that have had this for for centuries it's all of us we will see this in Europe as well and I know that in England for instance there's been a lot of flooding and storms and this is new to us so we have to handle that and I think in the, in the five-year period that you were describing I will expect us to achieve something to mitigate those things I think that will come first. The other things that we want to achieve, less pollution or less fossil pollution, that will be a longer mm -hmm. story. Journey. Yeah, that will be 2050. But there are steps on the way and I think that we first have to mitigate what the, this climate change actually will do mm -hmm. to, uh, to people in, the, in their ordinary lives. Now, Matthew, Ulrika made a really important point there, didn't she? And that is that standards can't work alone. And for them to be truly effective, they need to be embedded into frameworks and policies. We also heard Ulrika talk about some of the difficulties national standards bodies face, so the 167 ISO members, including engaging with stakeholders to convince them to both see and use standards as a powerful tool for change. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? And talk, talking of NSBs and ISO members, it's worth saying that here in the UK, with BSI in its role as the UK's national standards body and an ISO member, that we're tackling this issue head on with the UK government by being a key partner in delivering the UK's net zero strategy. Now, let's fly south from here to South Africa, in fact, and hear from another standards body. Sadvir Bassan is Executive Director of Standards at the South African Bureau of Standards. I spoke to him about what support NSBs need to engage more effectively with stakeholders on climate action. But I started by asking him how South Africa has approached stakeholder engagement for this issue. Our stakeholder engagement specifically around the climate agenda was focused on policymakers and, and regulators. So we specifically targeted um, various scopes of and portfolios of government departments. This includes Department of Trade and Industry and Competition, uh, the department that's responsible for um, fisheries uh, and environment, uh, the department that's responsible for um, the, uh, land reform, uh, as well as energy and minerals. Our focus was uh, to attain the objectives 
of firstly promoting standards, whether it's national or international, but primarily our national adoptions of international standards to government departments as a tool to support their policy decisions and, and achieving a regulatory objective. Secondly was to allow them the opportunity to actively participate in our technical committees and, and use our national standards uh, where relevant and where they can. Thirdly, subsequent to um, the publication of these standards, how we could jointly work uh, with the government departments to promote and launch these standards. So those were the four key primary objectives um, with the government departments and regulators. That's, that's really helpful. And in order to, so the main issue here is effective communication, essentially, to uh, policymakers and regulators on the power of standards. So what kind of support is required for national standards bodies around the world to deliver their role or their, to, to do their job well? So the first thing is we need to develop an effective communication whether it's a strategy or a plan, but you need to implement uh, those those action plans that you develop. So key to that is that we need to establish key messages uh, of the importance of utilization of, of standards, um, including the benefits of using standards, specifically uh, with reference to government departments. Um, what is the objective of the standard? How does it seek to achieve a particular objective or regulatory objective? and more importantly, um, provide some case studies um, if they are already existing from the private sector as well. In addition to that, um, there are a few tools that ISO has put together in terms of case studies, but um, I think there's a significant amount of uh, capacitation of a number of uh, national standards bodies, especially the developing country national standards bodies, to capacitate them to put these pieces and messages, strategic messages, uh, focused to specific sectors around climate change, both to the public and, and private sector. Uh, going beyond that, there's a, l a lot of platforms, it could be virtual platforms for webinars, uh, for workshops to be hosted to, to spread the message of the importance of standards and the value of standards um, in supporting um, initiatives and mitigating uh, the, the um, areas of climate change that are, have significant impact to uh, sustainability issues. That's really interesting. So what we need to do is really spread the word and encourage people to use existing standards. So you, you touched on the point of toolkits there. So do you think um, specific toolkits applicable to specific sectors would be helpful? Sure, that'll be very helpful because you could have a generic um, toolkit, um, but you need specific focus on the various sectors. So you might have to categorize the sectors, um, low carbon um, um, emission sectors compared to high carbon emission sectors and how you um, uh, present your case studies and present your message would be somewhat different. Even uh, at the level of policy and regulatory uh, platforms, those messages will be very different as well. So. Um, the f you, we could do a mapping of the various standards in existing NSBs or ISO, and based on the mapping of the various standards in the various sectors, we could put together uh, effective uh, toolkits to support national standards bodies in promoting uh, the importance of standards. So what would success look like in five years if we manage to get the London Declaration off the ground and implement it? Five years is short, yes. and we've got to be pragmatic. My um, first objective would be to get as many standards as possible 
that are relevant to climate change into documents, policy documents, not necessarily regulations, but highlighting in policy documents and policy frameworks, which, prov which will provide the basis and guidance for industries in their journey towards um, moving towards low carbon industries, and hopefully at some stage towards net zero emissions. Thank you. And what can we do with industry to ensure the implementation of these standards? What kind of support would be required on that front? Well, with industry, uh, I think they're very much mature than, than the uh, public sector. They're already participating uh, and they're very active in technical committees. Um, it's the appetite of implementing these solutions. That's, that's the core concern. So having a document and participating in technical committees is one thing, but you can't have a portfolio of several thousands of standards and it's not being used. So uh, we need to create an environment whereby industry could really understand, appreciate the benefits of standards and implement them. Um, and it has to be a self-regulatory process uh, up front before any intervention by the regulators. So engaging industry, again, on whatever platform possible um, and providing case studies. And, uh, and this will probably create more appetite for more industries to accept the significant impact of, uh, of carbon emissions and climate change and how they could evolve um, towards either retrofitting the industries or creating new industrialization industries that uh, will bring about um, uh, reduced carbon value chains in the economy. Now, as a final question, I asked Advir to tell me what more we need to do to deliver the London Declaration. We need to make sure that we have effective collaboration. Uh, we have to co-create. We have to take co-ownership, uh, co-accountability, and more importantly, uh, effective implementation and execution. Um, over and above that, the last step would be monitoring and evaluation, and the cycle repeats itself. So if we maintain that best practice uh, and that dis those descriptors around the cycle, I think we'll be heading in the, direct he heading in the right direction. Now, Cindy, I like the success factors that Sadvir finished with there, you know, and they're kind of essential, really, for delivering the London Declaration. You mentioned the four C's of collaboration, co-creation, co-ownership and co-accountability, and also a couple of important E's, effective implementation and execution. Yeah, and the importance of collaboration cannot be emphasised enough, can it? Not least for sharing good practice, pooling resources and, you know, just helping each other out. And Talking of collaboration, as I mentioned earlier, after the London Declaration panel session at the ISO annual meeting, I also got chatting to colleagues from Australia and Fiji about a partnership they've been developing to drive climate adaptation, a really interesting one, on wind loading. Okay then, wind loading? <laughs> Yeah, wind loading. Okay, to be honest, I had to look this up. So wind loading is the amount of pressure caused by wind that glass must be able to resist. So when calculating wind loads for building projects, there are many factors that need to be taken into consideration, including the building's height, shape, relationship to surrounding buildings and the terrain. Nice, nice, yep. nice and breezy. <laughs> Indeed. So first, we'll hear from Karen Batt, Head of International at Standards Australia, and she is followed by Ajeshni Lata, Standards Officer at the Department of National Trade Measurement and Standards in Fiji. I guess what I'd like to 
just tell you about today is our work in the Pacific Islands. Um, and we've, we've had some long standing relationships with many of the Pacific Islands and, and in particular Fiji. So we've been collaborating with Fiji for some time, but more recently an opportunity came for us to collaborate specifically on revising uh, the wind loading standards in Fiji. Uh, there's been a fair bit of analysis done by James Cook University through their uh, cyclone testing station uh, regarding uh, changes in wind loading in Fiji that we're seeing as a result of climate change. So uh, it's, it's, it's well known that the Pacific Islands are seeing a lot more cyclonic activity and in particular in those more severe cyclones uh, um, category 5 cyclones so since 2016 there's been four category um, 5 cyclones and that's in the space of seven years but prior to that the first the the last category 5 cyclone was 2002 so you can just see that huge increase in the frequency frequency, yeah and those really really damaging winds so um, the Fiji um, Meteorological Service had been collecting a lot of the data, uh, but also the James Cook uh, uni- University had been doing a fair, bu- fair bit of work. And so there was an opportunity for the Australian government, the university and ourselves, the Fiji and the, St- the Australian National Standards Body, to collaborate in an area to make the revision of the Fiji standard this time adapted to meet Fiji's specific wind loading. In the past... Uh, Fiji has been using our, our the Australian and New Zealand wind loading standards for some time, but it was it was obvious that we needed to collaborate to make it much more integrated and very specific to these new wind conditions that they're seeing. And as a result, the the average wind speed that they're designing to will be picked up quite significantly as a result. So one of the projects we started to work on was wind loading standard. And the reason why we came up with the wind load standard was because the number of tropical cyclones and um, has actually increased and its severity actually increases. And uh, uh, we have actually assessed in past years uh, around 10 uh, past 10 years we have received around 16 to 17 tropical cyclone and one of the most severe tropical cyclone was uh, Winston. So it has actually affected a lot of houses and schools and uh, health facilities in our country and um, some of the stats I can, I can share with you uh, is um, we have around 30,369 houses were destroyed and around 945 schools and around 88 health facilities were destroyed. This assessment was done after the disaster. Uh, It was post-disaster report uh, after tropical cyclone. So this is where I got this information from. And and it it actually indicated that we need to um, uh, build a very strong building structures or improve the building structures in Fiji and from that report we have also noticed that there are a lot of houses were destroyed basically in um, the villages uh, we have like villages in the islands which are the houses not built at up to standard or they hardly follow any standards so we have decided um, to update uh, our existing standards and bring up some new standards so this is where we decided to work on wind loading standard and also our stakeholders have proposed that we should bring a wind load standard um, wind load standard uh, 
to improve our building structures. So this is where uh, we started um, engaging with Standard Australia and, and uh, we tried to engage with their experts uh, from uh, James Cook University. Uh, they basically assisted us in creating a Fijian version of Winload Standard. So this standard uh, previously uh, we have adopted as a Fijian standard but there was no modification done and the likely chances could uh, there was uh, our designers could made some errors or possibilities of those things could have happened so what we have decided okay we make it a Fijian specific Fiji specific standard so uh, we work with our local experts and James Cook University to create a Fijian version of standard this standard basically um, they use the data provided by our Fiji Me Fiji meteorological services and uh, <coughs> we have uh, came up with a requirement for Fiji so the benefit of coming up of uh, with the coming up with this standard was that um, it will be um, the content of the standard will be basically for Fiji uh, previously the standard we have adopted was Australia and New Zealand standard so uh, what our designers were basically doing they basically assumed that on the Australian map this is uh, the region and they basically assume on the map that uh, on on the map they will see uh, uh, the region in which region Fiji will fall in but now it will be very easy for them and there will be less chances to make errors and they will be able to interpret it correctly so that is one of the benefit of um, making Fijian specific standard okay. and um, one of the opportunities that we had that we had experts which actually assisted us in creating uh, assisted us in creating awareness on this standard we have done workshops information session with the engineers with the the designers and also with the regulators and other stakeholders which might uh, indirectly affected can be affected by the standard so we had a good uh, awareness session and this is where they have actually informed and uh, inform the content of the standard and uh, explain why they have made these changes and stuff. We are also planning to um, work on more uh, standards with these experts, uh, basically trying to create more standards, uh, more standards that uh, will meet the needs of uh, Fijian climatic conditions. Now, Cindy, so far in this look at the London Declaration, we've heard from Scott on the Big Vision, uh, Ulrika at ISO on their London Declaration commitment and that of ISO members, mm -hmm. also from Sadvir from South Africa on engaging stakeholders, and then Karen and Ajeshni from Australia and Fiji on their growing partnership, but in particular on standards for wind loading. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, it's obvious that things are sort of well underway here and there's some, some momentum gathering. Absolutely. And I think it's definitely true to say that over the last year, we've laid the foundation to fully align the international standards community with climate science. So that is well underway. And that's really a great thing. And I suppose now having discussed the London Declaration with NSBs and ISO, it is clear that we need to make progress in a number of key areas. So 
first um, is to develop tools to support NSPs in their engagement with stakeholders. And we heard that directly from Ulrika and Sudvir. And I think second is that we need to add to the evidence base of the impact of standards in helping to achieve net zero and communicate this. And this is something that the ISO community is heavily focused on. And actually, um, we should give a shout out here to ISO's excellent Climate Action Toolkit. So this is a repository of really compelling case studies setting out how standards provide solutions to the climate change challenges. Then thir the third area is that we need to make sure that all voices are heard, particularly of those most vulnerable and marginalized, including the indigenous groups, and to ensure that their needs and challenges are met as well. Um, and the National Standards Body of Canada, Australia, and a few other nations mentioned some really exciting work. So watch this space. Um, we also need to promote more systematic collaboration and knowledge exchange, perhaps through communities of interest for priority areas such as green steel, green hydrogen, and green cement. All the greens there. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Absolutely. And finally, um, I think this will be number five. Yeah, I've been counting. This will be five. We also need to take stock of the progress made year to year and really renew our vows and efforts coinciding with COP27. So with all of this in mind, um, at the annual meeting in Abu Dhabi, ISO launched the ISO National Climate Champions Network, which brings us neatly to my conversation with Amanda Richardson, Head of External Policy here at BSI. Within ISO's Technical Management Board, TMB, Amanda co-led the development of the London Declaration Action Plan and is now the convener of the Implementation Task Force to track progress. So I spoke to her about ISO and BSI's broad plans for the next year and over the next five years. But I started by asking her what the new ISO National Climate Champions Network is all about. So as you know, ISO has made a, a firm commitment to take action on climate change uh, and is doing so in a number of different ways, for example, through meeting the objectives of the London Declaration. So the new network is a really important initiative to connect the members together to ensure that all of the ISO members are aware of the multitude of climate-related work going on across the ISO system, um, are fundamentally engaged and, of course, can then reach out to the global stakeholders and um, spread the message on ISO's activities in relation to um, climate action. So the network itself will allow members to discuss actions being taken at the national level to realise the objectives of the London Declaration and understand other national climate initiatives, ensure the exchange of good practice um, and importantly, to connect the national initiatives with ISO's global efforts. Um, you've, of course, heard this before, but uh, together we are stronger. Um, and so this network will enable us to continue to go from strength to strength. So at the ISO level, the Technical Management Board has just approved its action plan for realising the objectives of the London Declaration. Uh, and now, of course, we need to implement that plan. Um, so the immediate action um, for us uh, and over the next few years is actually taking forward um, the, the actions that have been agreed upon. Um, the action plan itself is, is very innovative and exciting. 
Um, this is a, a major long-term project, of course, um, and the impact should not be underestimated. Um, so at the ISO level, um, a good example to call on is ISOCS has recently commissioned an extensive piece of research. Uh, and one aspect of that research will look at the impact of standards um, on greenhouse gas uh, emissions. And to take that forward, um, firstly, ISO-TMB recognise, um, of course, the importance and significance of such projects, but also the challenges uh, and the pressure on our technical community to be able to take forward um, the, the actions and the outputs of that research and put it into meaningful revisions of, of, of standards. So one of the really exciting uh, actions identified at the Technical Management Board level was the creation of a what we're calling a pool of climate advisors. And that will enable us to take the outputs of the research and be the bridge, if you like, between the outputs of the research and the technical committee um, activities as they come to consider how to revise those standards to potentially reduce their impact. So we realise that a lot of our technical community may not have the knowledge, expertise or the time um, to be able to go into the detail of those um, standards that have been identified potentially as high impact. And so this pool of climate advisors will be um, engaged to provide specific advice and recommendations to those technical committees on how and what they need to revise within their standard um, to reduce the impact. So that's quite an exciting, um, innovative, um, innovative piece. So yes, so for the immediate actions, uh, we are um, we have a, an implementation task force um, which I'm uh, convening at the technical management board level, um, and we have a, a clear set of priorities, short, medium, and long term, um, to be able to take forward the actions and start to realise um, the um, objectives of the London Declaration. At the national level in BSI, um, we're also working on our action plan at the national level. Um, I've recently uh, recruited a, a policy manager specifically focusing on London Declaration um, for BSI to take forward its own actions and initiatives. And a lot of those actions will be underpinned by the uh, ISO Central Secretariat Research plus the ISO Technical Management Board Action Plan, and then will be modified for our national and um, local audience. But a very similar approach uh, will be taken by BSI um, in taking forward uh, the actions that we've identified. So the likes of commissioning research for our national projects, identifying um, potential high impact standards, um, putting them through a revision process, a swift revision process, um, to uh, really start to see the impact of the London Declaration. So Cindy, this project is a critical step in ISO's and BSI's commitment to climate action. We're delighted that BSI have taken a lead role internationally and we're really excited now to implement the action plan and to start to see the impact and contribution that our standards can play in combating climate change. So our thanks to Ulrika Franca, Sadvir Bisson, Ajesh Nilata, Karen Batt, Amanda Richardson and Scott Steeman for talking to us for this episode of The Standard Show. And of course, our thanks to you for listening. To find out more about the London Declaration and how standards can help the transition to net zero, then check out the links in the show notes. You have been listening to an episode of The Standard Show with Matthew Childs and Cindy Parakil. Subscribe to us now wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.
You just heard a stripped media production.